I've played a lot of music. I'm from a musical family, traditional Irish music. I played the fiddle. And I grew up around a lot of music where I'm from in Sligo in, in Gertrude was the name of the village. And I played a lot of music through my teens, you know, like a lifetime worth of music. And then I went to college, got deep into the engineering, completely disassociated with the musical side of my existence. And I kind of almost forget about myself as a musician. And I don't really even think about the, myself as a musician or quote unquote an artist as people call me because I play music. So I get, people always say, oh, it makes complete sense that you're doing this art and tech thing because you're an artist, you're a musician. But the funny thing is, I don't see myself as that at all. Like, that's almost an alien part to my existence today. But yet, at the same time, there has to be something there. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network a not-for-profit organization with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on today's episode, I sit down with Donald Hernan, who is the VP of Research, Innovation and Creativity at Nokia Bell Labs. Now, you may not have heard of the Nokia Bell Labs, but for the last 95 years, the Bell Labs have been inventing products that have changed the course of human life. They created the first transistor in the 1940s, which is considered by many to be the most important invention of the 20th century. They also created the first hearing aid and the first laser, amongst many, many, many other incredible inventions. And they have been and continue to be one of the world's leading research and development institutions. And today's guest, Donald Hernan, is leading them on a new path. Throughout their history, Bell Labs has been famous for producing some of the world's most respected scientists and researchers. But now Donal is trying to blend the worlds of science and art to innovate on products that will bring humanity closer together. And in this interview, we talk about culture and the work that he has done to further the culture of innovation at the Bell Labs. We also get into a very interesting discussion about the benefit of having diversity for innovation and how he brought two very polarized communities in scientists and artists together and saw magic happen. But before we actually get into Donald's story, we should begin with Bell Labs and the history of this famous institution. So there's two kind of brand names there that people might know or might not know. One is Nokia and one is Bell Labs. And then there's Nokia Bell Labs, right? So I'll explain, Nokia is of the famous, uh, you know, what's called the handset. You remember the old phones prior to the smartphones? Nokia owns the world of handsets, you know, that those feature phones prior to smartphones. And then, of course, Apple and the iPhone came along and every, the world changed. And we all know that story. What very few people realize is that then and especially now, Nokia also had another part of the business that was around network infrastructure. So a big part of our business were handsets. We sold that to Microsoft, but we maintained that network infrastructure part of the business and, in fact, invested a lot more in that grew. So now Nokia today is a global leader in network technology, network infrastructure, telecommunications technology. So in other words, the way to think of that is anytime your phone connects to another phone or connects to the internet, that's most likely Nokia technology. So we're a B2B company now that all of the wireless products that you see on the side of a building, a lot of the fiber optic technology under the ground, some of the satellite technology, a lot of the data center all of that kind of stuff. A lot of that is Nokia technology. So it's, it's B2B, so the Nokia brand is not so obvious now today to the consumer. But we're a global leader in that space. I think the annual revenues are around 26 billion euro, 100,000 people in Nokia. So 
the, the Nokia is still very strong. It's just transitioned from being the phone handset business to being network infrastructure. Very interesting. I never knew that. So that's Nokia. Yeah. Right. And then there's Bell, we'll take Bell Labs as separate to that. So Bell Labs has a very strong brand name in its own right, but Bell Labs is only and only has ever been the research division of a parent company. It goes way back to about, we were founded in 1925. Our first parent company was Western Electric. Then we were with AT&T for a very long time, many decades. Then AT&T was forced to divest um, because they were a monopoly and the US government caused them to break into three companies. One of the companies was a company called Lucent, which was on the um, technology manufacturing side. Bell Labs stayed the research arm of that. Um, and then in 2006, we merged with a, Lucent merged with a French company called Alcatel. Bell Labs remained being the research arm of Alcatel Lucent. And then three years ago, I think January 2016, Nokia acquired Alcatel Lucent. And, Nokia, and then Bell Labs became the research division of Nokia. So the reason it's called Nokia Bell Labs is because Bell Labs in its own right has such a strong brand and a strong history of research and fundamental research and innovation, turning those research ideas into reality and really, you know, like inventing the transistor and the laser and Unix and C programming language, all this stuff, right? Really fundamental technology shifts in humanity's existence. That's all from Bell Labs. So the idea was to make sure we don't lose the power of either, either brand and then how do the two brands come together as Nokia and Bell Labs? So that's what, why we're called Nokia Bell Labs today. What was the what was the heyday of the Bell Labs? Because there was there was a period of time where they really were producing some incredible inventions. Yeah, typically I think the heyday could be considered the 50s, 60s, 40s, 50s, 60s would be considered as the heyday. That's when a lot of fundamental researchers, and like the transistor was invented in 1947. That's changed modern existence. The laser was probably around that bit time a little bit later. So really some core fundamental insights into technology, new materials, entirely new approaches to doing things came about typically in the 40s, 50s, 60s, would be considered even the 70s maybe. That, that's the kind of few decades of the world changing, game changing, Bell Labs churning out invention, invention, innovation after after the next, you know, or, you know, it was really, so I think that was the key time. Now, Bell Labs still has a massive role to play in that. It's just that we're not as visible to the external world like we used to be many decades ago. Well, amongst you and your peers, what's the central ethos that the Bell Labs has today that kind of drives you forward? So it's all about solving humanity's biggest challenges. So what's society's biggest challenge with respect to communication? Uh, how it, so is it always centered around communication? Yeah, yeah, because we're in the telecommunications industry. Our parent companies, our parent company, always their core business is communication and connecting people via zeros and ones. And then it's Bell Labs' role then to kind of invent and innovate on top of that. So how can we have the most efficient transmission of information over wireless technology, over fiber optics and photonics technology, optics? How can we connect you to another person in the most efficient way with the highest capacity, highest bandwidth? And now the new work we're doing is how do we connect people on an emotional level? I'm sure we'll talk about that. But the key, the core is always like, I'll give you a prime example. You know, you have copper in the ground through what's called fixed access or DSL, the same copper for many decades, right? So prior to fiber optics, all information was transferred via, you know, your standard fixed phone lines over copper in the ground, what's called fixed twisted copper. And that technology had very low capacity to send information. And then fiber optics was seen as the next big revolution that would enable like gigabit per second internet speeds in your home. What Bell Labs was able to do through our 
fundamental insights into the uh, transmission medium like copper, our understanding of how to send information through different media and things like this, we were able to invent algorithms that could sit on the existing copper and go at speeds faster than fiber optics. So, you know, we would kind of say internally it's turning copper into gold because we didn't now have to dig out all that copper relay fiber optics, really expensive. We could send just as much information over the existing copper that's been in the ground for decades. So it's that kind of, that's the power of Bell Labs. It's like taking fundamental understanding of any, any technology, any scientific area, trying to think what's the future human need and then being able to invent that future and fill that gap in way ahead of anyone else because of our deep fundamental understanding. But always trying to solve a human need, an industry need. It's never about just ideas for the sake of ideas. It's always trying to solve a, prob uh, a problem towards some human need, some societal challenge that we predict will be there in the future. And are you guys very unique in the sense that you take a very broad perspective then on innovation, that you're not just looking at your own backyard? Would a lot of other companies that work in the telecommunications space would they just be looking at how they can create something for you know the, the next coming market or something that they can invent on yeah. with their previous products? Are you taking a very broad perspective then where it's, it's not just about whether we can ship this into a product, but how we can just make improvements and developments? Yeah, definitely. We're, we're, fairly, we're very unique in the telecom industry, but we're very unique in any industry across technology or any industry in general. There's very few industries that have a fundamental research lab. So a lot of people talk about, you know, they've R&D. It's supposed to be research and development. Very few companies actually have research. It's usually development. And at best, they might have what we would call applied research, which is not, it's not the research we think about research. It's not that deep, fundamental, new insights, new knowledge. What would you consider to be applied research? Um, kind of taking a, a kind of a new technology that's been proven somewhere and using it in a slightly different way. Right. It's, it's not a fun, it's not, there's no new fundamental insights. That's something that uh, separates Bell Labs and we're much more like academia from that point of view. Mm. But the difference between us and academia is that academia, academia, it's all about published papers and journals, a little bit about patents and IP, but not so much. And then where does, where do those ideas and where does that knowledge go? Right typically doesn't really go anywhere other than it's new knowledge and it has to be matured and progressed. So the key difference with Bell Labs, we're like an academic research lab in that we have the fundamental new insights, deep scientific knowledge, but then we turn that into actual product innovations that impact our company and our industry and change humanity. So we have, I've, in my view, we're in a sweet spot in the best of both worlds where we can combine industry need, societal need in the future, and we can invent and create new fundamental scientific insights and then develop the maturity of those insights into actual products that get moved into our business that then enable you and I to have new business ideas to connect in different ways, really to leverage that infrastructure that we've created um, in ways to move society forward. Just another question that I have on the Bell Labs, because it's, it's very interesting. Is it a viable business for Nokia? Is, is it something that they see as a revenue model that your creations can then be sold to other companies? So there, there's multiple ways that you can look at how it plays an impactful role within the business. One is that we invent new technologies that provide Nokia with years of advantage in the market. So literally, we can bring a new technology to the market two, three, five years ahead of anyone else. So that's one. So that's massive market differentiation. So that's, what, that's like the core of what we do is inventing new technology, bringing it to our business. Our business then has an offering that can do things that none of our competitors can do. So that's one. And that, 
obviously then generates a lot of revenue because there's new product offerings that go to market. The next is obviously through our IP. Like Nokia is a global leader in in our IP. We have a very strong IP portfolio. Uh, we have a lot of what's called standard essential patents. So a lot of companies in the world, they all signed up to these particular standards. And if they use certain patents to in their smartphones, like whether it's a smartphone or a feature phone, whatever, they typically have to use Nokia's IP. And then that's a revenue generating stream. And then any technology that might not go into our patents or might not go into our product lines, we can also license then externally to any industry, to any company. Uh, so there's many ways that Bell Labs plays major impact into the into Nokia, both from a revenue generating point of view and, and, and others. And one of the big ones is really differentiation in the market. And a prime example is just that one technology I mentioned. It's called vectoring. This algorithm that we apply on the information that sits on the existing copper in the ground, most people and most of our competitors exited that business because they thought it was dead. No one thought there was a future in it and we were able to completely revolutionize that entire business because of uh, insights in one algorithm from Bell Labs that sat on top of that existing technology and completely changed the game. And that's kind of, that's the value of of an entity like Bell Labs. So now that we have an understanding of Bell Labs mm. and the value that it brings to society, how did you come to work there? So I, I studied in Limerick, University of Limerick, I did aeronautical engineering, I did an undergrad in AeroEng, and I did a PhD in aerodynamics. And I was all set to, my big dream was to work for Boeing or Lockheed Martin in the US. Why was that? They were the, they were the major big innovators in the aerospace. And why, what drew you to just aeronautical engineering? Just had a passion for anything to do with space and airplanes. I just wanted to know how airplanes flew. I wanted to be a person that did something interesting in airplanes. I didn't. I wasn't interested in piloting. That's of zero interest to me. But I just remember I'm from Sligo, and I remember standing in the back of my, you know, the the backyard in the house in Sligo, and looking up at all the planes that would pass directly overhead going from Dublin to the U.S. and just being completely enthralled and fascinated with how the hell could this even be? I mean, it's kind of magical. It is, yeah. Right. I mean, it's same. It's magical the way I can FaceTime my brother. In Galway, as an example, I can be driving down the highway here at 70 miles an hour. He can be on the motorway in Galway at 70 miles an hour, 120 kilometers an hour. And we can FaceTime and it's 3000 miles in the difference. That's kind of magical, right? Yeah. And it's the same with airplanes. You know, if you think about it, how the hell do, do these masses of metal with 300 people raise themselves up into the air? And how can it be so safe for the, for the vast majority of time? Yeah. I mean, it's absolute magic and people kind of just get so used to it, they don't even think of the magic of that technology. So that used to fascinate me. How can, how the hell can this even be possible? How old were you when that kind of sparked an I interest in you? I was 14. I knew, I knew I wanted to, you know, have something to do with airplane design at 14. Had you always been very interested just in design and engineering and how things were built and systems and stuff no, like that? No, I was very interested in space. And really? Anything to do with space. And then I was mainly about space and I would have you know wanted to have been an astronaut I'm sure at some stage but then at about 14 I probably realized coming from Ireland it was highly unlikely but then I started that transition from being interested in space to spacecraft and shuttles and then obviously to aircraft I mean there isn't very much of a difference between how an airplane flies and how a space shuttle flies and that kind of then all happened at the same time where my major interest went from I just saw airplanes as a natural extension of my interest in space and I became all about that. I was very lucky at a very early age, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I was lucky that the only university in the south of Ireland that 
does that program as Limerick, I would have had to have gone to either Queen's in Belfast or some of the big universities in the UK. So I was lucky that Limerick offered that and I spent seven years in Limerick. What did you do as an undergrad? Uh, aeronautical engineering. Oh, so they had a specific undergrad yeah, in yeah. that? Okay. Yeah. yeah, so it runs similar to mechanical engineering for the first couple of years, like common modules and courses. And then in the next two years, you split into very specific um, airplane design, like aviation and aerodynamics and all those kind of things. Fascinating. And then you went on to do a PhD. Yeah. yeah. And what was that in? It's on a topic called turbulence. Well, after that was completed, then did you, what did you want to go forward with? So I was doing my PhD, probably like six months away from finishing it, maybe a bit longer. And I come back from some conference, I was presenting my work somewhere. And I was in a room in Limerick, in the University of Limerick, with maybe 10 other PhD students, like all my friends. And they're all doing different, like microfluidics, or they're we're all, we're all working on different things. And I come in one day and then there's an older guy, strange guy from America that's sitting right beside me at my desk. And at the time I had another paper that I had to submit and I had two weeks to get to do all the testing in the wind tunnel and do all my analysis and then write up the paper. It was very intense, you know. So I came in, saw this guy, said hello. I went to the wind tunnel in a different building, did my 14 hours a day testing kind of thing. Did that for two weeks. Would see him every so often when I had to come back to the main building would say hello, but didn't really get into anything. So as soon as I pressed submit on the paper, I turned around to him and I said, I'm really sorry. I haven't been particularly friendly or, you know, talkative to you because I had this big deadline. I've done that now. Really sorry. Hey, why are you here? What are you doing? Just generally trying to be nice, you know? Yeah. It turns out he was a, a research manager from Bell Labs. Bell Labs had just within a year set up a new research lab in Dublin the first ever of Bell Labs outside of North America. It was a really big deal in partnership with the IDA. Um, and it was really like a global, it was like a global event that Bell Labs had done something outside of North America. It was a really big deal at the time. He was setting up a whole new research area and a re new research lab in the area called thermal science. So basically, things get hot, how do you cool them down? Otherwise they fail and it costs a lot of money and energy to cool hot things. Um, and I was in aerodynamics and I sat with him, talked. He asked me, like, what are you working on? I explained it, you know, and he was like, oh, you know, you should apply for a job at Bell Labs. You were hiring in Dublin. We've got this new research lab. I was like, no, I didn't know who Lucent was. That was the parent company. Didn't know who Bell Labs was. Didn't care. I told him straight out. I said, no, no interest. Don't know who you are. I want to work for Lockheed or Boeing. He was like, okay. And I said, like, I'm finishing my PhD. I have no interest. We kept on talking, just friendly. He'd ask me more questions about my work every day. And then one, a few months later, or however long later, he goes, I have two colleagues from the labs in the US coming over. Will you just talk to them about your work? Sure, no problem. Talk to anyone about my work. Presented to them. Didn't think much of it. Didn't really care because it wasn't... I didn't really care who they were, who the company was. I was just talking about my work. And then they invited me to do a, a, an interview with them in Dublin. I thought... This is great. I'll do the interview so I have interview experience to get my dream job with Lockheed Martin or Boeing. And then, of course, ahead of the interview, I had to learn more about Lucent and Bell Labs. And then I realized, oh, like these are these are serious. Like Bell Labs is the equivalent of Lockheed Martin or Boeing or, or the way they push innovation and invention in that industry is actually even more impressive than Lockheed or Boeing. Right. And I got to know what was going on. And I did the interview just for the experience. I didn't I had no intention of working there or anything. And what was your awareness of Bell Labs before the interview? Did you? Oh, zero. I okay. mean, like I said to the guy, I said, I don't even know who Bell Labs is or Lucent is. I, I mean, I want to work for, I genuinely, and I was, I was completely blatantly, brutally honest with him. I mean, I was being tr very true to myself, right? That's just 
just the way I am in my nature. It gets me in trouble sometimes, but I had no idea. But then I learned, and then I did the interview, and I thought that was a great experience. It's a very intensive thing. You go out for dinner with some of the team the night before on a kind of more social basis. You come in the next morning very early. You meet the managers again. You present for an hour to the whole labs, all the different teams. Then you have breakout interviews the whole rest of that day to like 6 p.m. with a bunch of people. It's really intense, like bang, 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 interview, interview, interview. And then that night they were having their one-year celebration in Ireland and I got invited to that. So I'd almost like a bare sleeping night, a 24-hour interview. And I thought this is a great experience. And then they offered me the job. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'll work for Bellows as a postdoc, right? You know, doing research for a year. So that'll help my CV. So I get my dream job. And anyway, I'm here 13 years later. You know, I've had great opportunities in the place. I'm basically institutionalized now. But the funny thing was, no one else, or none of my other, my friends and my PhD colleagues in that room, they didn't really engage with this guy, didn't really talk to him. They kept their heads down, did their own research, were really super focused on that. And they just, there was opportunities there that they lost out on because they didn't think to lift their heads up and actually engage this person like another human being. Because mm. that happens with technologists, especially PhDs. We all, generally in the community, can get so super focused on that the thing we're doing, that you can forget that the rest of the world exists. But that was a big lesson for me that I engaged him like a human from just treating like a human being and having a conversation, an opportunity arose, which I initially completely dismissed. And I was being true to myself. It was very authentic, if you want to call it that. But then just through continuing the conversation, that turned into one of the most special opportunities that I could have ever imagined anywhere in any organization. I honestly don't, I could never have done the things I've done in Bell Labs with any other company in the world. And speaking of the things that you've done 13 years later, the work that you do today is completely different to what you went in there with. Yeah. So could you just tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing today and how, how you got onto that path? Sure. So today I, I lead a, an art and technology lab. So the idea is how do we help our engineers and scientists collaborate deeply and meaningfully with the artistic community to humanize technology. You could broadly think of that. So how do we bring that deep into our research community so that when we develop a technology, we've already thought long and hard and deeply about what are the consequences of that technology on the future of humanity. And that's basically it in a nutshell. So that's what I do today. And that's a role that I created a few years ago because I saw this opportunity in this space to bring these two worlds together. I was very excited about it. When I was, I was a researcher, when I first joined Bell Labs, I had a lot of frustration at my observations about how most other people, in fact, all people in Bell Labs, researchers, communicated the value of their work, how they engaged and communicated with other people outside of their research area, whether it was product developers in the parent company, whatever. And it was very academic. It was very specific to how they would actually communicate to a world subject matter expert just like themselves. And I just saw so much waste and inefficiency and, la and lost opportunity in the way that they presented their work, talked about their work, demonstrated their work, everything. It used to drive me crazy. Honestly. Is that because you're saying they were producing great things, but they weren't necessarily communicating that greatness to people who weren't working in their field? Yeah. yeah. And they would make no attempt at all to try and understand the world from the other person's perspective so that they could bridge that gap between their knowledge and what they did and how that might have future impact versus this person that they're talking to now who has immediate needs in a certain part of the business or whatever. So that was the real big gap between just this inability to narrate and compel people about the value of this research and to help that person understand that I have this research idea, this research result or asset now, 
But if you as a product designer, if you work with me now, we can get this new invention to the market and be five years ahead of everyone else. But we need to partner on this now. And here's the risk associated with it. Here's how we de-risk it together. Here's how we bring your knowledge with our knowledge. And this is going to take a few years, but they could never compel those people to come along with them on the journey. So I used to be honestly very frustrated. I mean, How long were you working in the in Bell Labs when that kind of came to a tipping oh, point? Oh, immediately. Like literally within a few weeks, I was already being invited in on phone calls where um, other researchers in my management at the time were having phone calls with our product designers trying to convince them that we had a new idea that would be of value to their business. And I just literally couldn't fathom. They, they were talking in equations. And this is not an exaggeration. I actually directly quoting what happened, one of the calls where it blew my mind, one of the researchers was saying, you, you know, if you consider the differentiation of the density against the velocity in the Navier-Stokes equation, that will explain how you do. And I mean, that's like a deeply fundamental research thing that only another world expert that works in that would get what you're saying. You don't speak to anyone outside of that world that way. And then I became, you know, like a more senior researcher in the group after a few years opportunity arose to become the technical manager and then I got to hire people I got to set the research direction I hired people that I felt could have bridged the gap between fundamental understanding with PhDs to product and that had this kind of creative flair to how they talk about the work how they show the work and we we built a team we went from like when I first became a manager six people to 18 people in a couple of years and we did we became known in the company as the pioneers and these the leaders in how you experientially showcase and talk and promote your fundamental research and convince the product that this is something you should invest in. So we, so that was, and now that's where I say I struggle with explaining how I got to where I am today because I don't quite know exactly why, I don't quite, I can't pinpoint exactly how, why I felt so strongly that we had to have this aesthetic experiential aspect to showing our technology and our research other than I saw a gap in how others were doing it and I thought that was crazy and I, I felt there was a better way and I kind of just pushed that aggressively. Then we became known as that. I moved to the States after, you know, a bit of time doing that work, you know, progressed in my career. I was brought over to the States initially to drive culture change around collaboration, knowledge sharing, experiential showcases. How do we compel the world to believe that Bell Labs is doing the, the most groundbreaking research and compel our new parent company, Nokia? because they, they wouldn't really understand. So I was brought over to the US to, to drive that. And then this opportunity arose to, for us to consider doing something with the artistic community. And I was a, a natural fit because of the way I led research teams and the way I speak and communicate and see the world. And then I started at being involved in that very earliest days, just conversations with artists. Those conversations blew my mind. I mean, it opened up my mind to entirely new perspectives on life in general and technology and everything else. And I just said, I have to go, to use an American expression, all in on this. And then a year and a half ago, I just said, I'm leaving my dream job in innovation incubation, and I'm going to go full time on the art thing. And we established a new lab. We're hiring a few people, went from zero activity in Bell Labs for 30 years to now we have about 24 artists or so that we're supporting all over the world. And it was kind of like a natural organic thing, but I just saw so much potential in the fusion of art and technology to transform humanity. But I also saw a massive challenge in doing it. The, the, the challenge was another big motivation for me because the two worlds are extremely different. And I was both the, the optimism of how it might change society and the world, plus the challenge that really spoke to my interests. You know, now that we're talking about art and technology, 
what you said there, like the the opportunity to bridge art and technology together to make a fundamental impact um, on, on human communication, human connection. That's you know when you when that's presented, it's it's almost hard to fathom mm-hmm. because the two worlds in our minds are operating their own disciplines. So can you just break that down a bit to explain? Because art in itself is such a broad topic. Sure. Technology in itself is such a broad topic. Yeah. At what point do the two worlds connect and where does something special happen? Yeah, so I'll give you, I can give you a couple of really concrete. I'll give you a high-level kind of abstract, my thoughts on the difference between the two, but also the opportunity. I'll give you a couple of concrete examples. So I, when I'm describing to people the differences, I kind of, I always draw very simply two triangles. So picture a triangle that starts off, you know, at the point and grows to the higher part, right? And that's kind of, um, or sorry, the opposite way around. For engineering and science, you start with the big part of the triangle that goes down to the pointy bit. Uh-huh. And what, what I mean by that is an engineer or scientist starts with a big problem, we break it down into its solvable chunks, and then we get super focused on the most solvable bit we're working on, and we forget about everything else. Yeah. And we go by that in a reductionist, linear and logical approach. So I can tell you as an engineer how I go from A to D by passing through B and C, and I'm going to break down the problem to say I'm going to just work on this small bit and I forget about everything else. In our training in engineering science, for the most part, in modern training and the way business works, we as engineer science, we never think about downstream, how might this affect humanity in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? That's not a consideration. So that's a big gap. So we have a very good rational, logical, reductionist scientific approach to solving problems that's served humanity very well. Look where we are, right? Yeah. But at the same time, through that approach, it has limitations. It's very sequential. It's very sequential, very logical, very linear, very reductionist. Start with a big problem, break it down, forget about everything else. Yeah. Now, the artist picture a triangle exactly the opposite. Picture a triangle above that that starts at the pointy bit and grows to the, the taller end. I'm almost envisioning like two pyramids opposing each other where you've got one with the bottom going to the point it, and then the opposite way it around. It could be that way. Exactly, yeah. Now, I draw this, I'll explain why I draw, draw those two triangles the way I did. Now, the artist starts with a small idea. It expands diverges to a universe of possibility. They go about, they see their world in a very divergent, very non-linear, and very illogical way. So I mean illogical from the perspective of an engineer scientist. Ask an artist how you go from A to D, they'll pass every other letter in the alphabet and never touch B and C. And they can struggle to explain why they've done a thing a certain way and so on. So the two worlds are as as opposite as you could possibly get. There is no bigger opposition or two differences, in my view, in any two disciplines or way of thinking or doing than those two worlds. And you're working in in an industry at the Bell Labs where it is is hyper-specialized, hyper-focused. But what you're doing is you're kind of bringing a more generalist spin to things mm. because by having a broader perspective, people look at problems in new ways. Yeah. Do you look at that as something that's central to it? The, you were trying to encourage a more generalist approach to work and, and problem-solving and decision-making yeah, and collaboration. 100%. I mean, in, in general, it just... It makes intuitive sense. Mm. I mean, I could go into I could go into a theory of it if you want. Yeah, I'd to. love not, to hear not a theory. I really yeah, particularly want to. But there's there's this uh, theory called the adjacent possible, mm. and it's really fascinating. It's actually proven a scientifically proven theory of biological evolution and diversity. And basically, to think about it this way, what it means is through the coming together of different things, new things are created. A lot of those new things are crap. Like they get just get discarded from an evolutionary point of view, a biological point of view, an innovation point of view, whatever. There's some of those things that those new emergent 
things out of these collisions of different things that are very beneficial. So with respect to human evolution, the way we've evolved, there's certain things that have progressed to our evolution, helped us be what we are today. And there's a lot of stuff that just got dropped out through the gene pool, right? And the same with every other animal. But that same notion of what's called the adjacent possible can be applied to innovation. The adjacent possible basically says, there's a bunch of stuff that you know. It can be your colleagues here. You get on with them a certain way. You have certain conversations. You're going to think about the world a certain way. Now you bring in something different into that mix. Now all of a sudden that difference opens up a whole new opportunity space for new thinking, new ideas, new innovation, new impact. But you could never have got to that point if you didn't have that insertion of that new thing. That's generally the, this premise. And it's a proven scientifically proven idea for biological evolution and diversity, but it can be applied to innovation. I think about that a lot. I don't hear very many people talk about that, but it's a really interesting concept for me. And basically, it's a way of thinking about what we do is in, in the ultimate, like a lot of people will talk about uh, improving the diversity of the workforce. And, you know, a lot of it is about, you know, male-female representation, a lot about it is other representation that are different from white men in tech, as an example, right? And of course, that makes sense. But what we try and do is, of course, we do that, but we also try and take it to an extreme where we bring in an artist, bring them deep into a scientific technology company. And that for me is like turning the what's called the adjacent possible on steroids. Like that's kind of amplifying and exploding out that opportunity space because the differences in how they think about the world versus us is, the, is like the equivalent of bringing in 50 different people into the normal mix. And that's really what excites me. I see it as you could think of it as like an acceleration of the innovation process or the ideation or the invention part of it. Like, how do you think about the world and come up with all these new ideas? And it's only through the collision of all those different perspectives. And that can be a cultural thing. It can be a scientific discipline thing. It can be a, a ethnographic racial thing, if you want to. It can be, it doesn't matter. I call it diversity of everything. Like, literally, there's only good from being surrounded by and bringing in as many differences as you can imagine into your organization. And that's where I view the future of innovation as well as through this immense diversity on every possible dimension you could measure it. And what happens in that, in that kind of area of tension when an artist and um, a scientific researcher or engineer come to collaborate for the first time? Because yeah. I can imagine there is just, there must be a wall of, of difference, which you've already, already expressed. But I mean, in, in how we physically interact and communicate yeah. where... It must. There must be a period of time where oh, yeah. it, 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 they start to kind of get used to each other's yeah. traits. So it, it can be a disaster. So this is literally where why I earn my salary. Or, or you could think, if you're to think, the most important thing I do is the matchmaking process. Mm. If I don't do this in a certain way very carefully, it'll be a disaster and our, and our program would be seen to be a complete disaster and it would be shut down. And I see a lot of organizations do this, that they intuitively see value in bringing art and tech together. What they do is they kind of randomly pick an artist, they throw them in randomly with an engineer or scientist, and then they kind of just say, well, just, just do stuff. And Figure it they out. magically, something good will happen. And I honestly, I think that's the greatest load of nonsense. And that's a disservice to the value that these two uh, disciplines can bring together. What I do is I go deep into the matchmaking process. So I spend a lot of time with the artists, get to know their personality. Are they collaborative? Are they adaptive? How do they talk about their work? How do they embrace technology? How do they use technology? What's their technology savviness? How, are, how open are they to new ideas and, and all of that, right? And then I go into the labs and I think about who I know are engineers or scientists, what they're working on, when, what projects do they have to deliver? How open might they be to this new perspective? 
And I just, then I think at the right time with the right artist, with the right engineer scientist, and I say, okay, this is a good match. So then I'll bring them together and I'll act as that initial translator, mediator to try and fuse these two worlds because there's totally different communication, different way of thinking. But I've already done a lot of work in bridging that because I've picked, I filtered for the right people that I think will be a good match. Then I bring them together and then I step away. Often it can be for a few months, let that artist explore, get to know our different researchers or different teams or different technologies. They go into exploration mode. And then sometimes I'll, I'll dip back in to make sure there's no communication issues, which can happen quite a lot. So I try and like, I'm very much in it and involved in it in the initial setup, get everyone to a certain point, then step away, let it organically happen, and then try and step back in and keep an eye on it when, when things need. Are there specific streams within art or artists that you yeah. focus on and similarly with tech where you see that the best matchup exists between the two? Yeah, well, there's there's a kind of two big splits that we have. So we're a tech company. So what we do has to be related to technology. We're a communications company, so it has to be related to communication. So what I didn't mention earlier is, you know, one of our big themes is this concept of humanizing technology. But the overall research vision we have for our work is to create new ways for humans to emotionally connect and to develop deeper understanding between people. So that's the kind of master research vision. So then within that then, what we end up doing is, because we're a tech company, we end up splitting the type of artists we work with almost down the middle in two ways. One is artists that work with emerging technologies like augmented reality, virtual reality, AR, VR, machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotics, all those kind of you know, very important emerging technologies. So we work with multimedia artists that have a, their practice deep in bringing humanity with technology, but with a focus on those particular technologies. Okay. And that's, you know, has to be something core to the potential future of the business or the current business that we're in. Otherwise it would be silly, you know, me bringing in artists that are like fine paint artists won't necessarily be a very good fit. or won't be super impactful for what we do as a tech company, right? So that's just being strategic and, and smart about how we do this. The other side is, because we have this vision of connecting people emotionally, we have to look at what are the other, and I'm doing like air quotes, what are the other types of language that convey emotion? Now, a type of language, or you could think of it as like a proxy language that conveys emotion is music. So you get a deep emotional response to music that you could never get, or typically would be very hard to get through words, right? So we work a lot with musicians and composers to understand the structures in music that convey emotion. And recently we've started working with neuroscientists to understand the structures in the brain, the reasons why the brain and why humans actually react to uh, emotion that way. And we're developing new technologies that we hope to be able to enable transfer of emotion or transfer of deeper understanding between people. So we can break down some of these communication barriers. So that's kind of, you know, talking about the, ma the research vision we have and then why you asked what's the split. So it's really almost 50-50 between those two different types of artists. But technology is always at the core of what we do. Your, your background blends very well into that then because you have quite a background when you were a child as a, as a musician, yeah. right? Yeah, so there's something there. I mean, that's why I, I struggle to... Exa so the weird thing is I really struggle with this just on a personal level. I did, I've played a lot of music. I'm from a musical family, traditional Irish music. I played the fiddle. And I grew up around a lot of music where I'm from in Sligo in, in Gerching was the name of the village. And I played a lot of music through my teens, you know, like a lifetime worth of music. And then I went to college, got deep into the engineering, practically, like literally completely disassociated with the musical side of my existence. And I became all about the engineering and the science uh, to the point that I went like many, many years not playing at all. Or I might go six months at a time and never pick up the fiddle. But it was always there in the background. So the weird thing is 
you know, like however many years that I went to college at 18, whatever age I'm in, I'm 38 now, right? So I started this role, let's say three years ago. So let's say roughly 35. But from 20 or 18 to 35, I deeply saw myself, my persona is an engineer. And I kind of almost forget about myself as a musician. And I don't really even think about the, myself as a musician or quote unquote an artist as people call me because I play music. So I get, people always say, well, it makes complete sense that you're doing this art and tech thing because you're an artist, you're a musician. But the funny thing is, I don't see myself as that at all. Like, that's almost an alien part to my existence today. But yet at the same time, there has to be something there. Like, I played so much music in my teens and there's, there's wiring of my brain that's still there because of that, that it has to have played a role. And I have a strong affinity towards the sound art part of it, like the spatial audio, what cool things you do with sound, how do you move sound around, composition, all that kind of side of it. So it has to play a role. I just, I really, I really struggle other than that's kind of uh, crappy explanation. I struggle to explain exactly how that former part of my existence ties to this new part. Cause I actually don't see them as related at all, but they must be right. Yeah. I can imagine because for, for you to have come in when you started at the Bell Labs to recognize that there was an issue and how your research was presented, that I can totally imagine was linked to you playing music because when you play music, especially when you play it to the extent that you did, you're not thinking while you're playing music. You're just playing music and you're actually observant of the crowd and you're observant of what's happening around you. And you're getting a constant feedback loop as to what things are working well and what things aren't, whether you're consciously aware of it or not, yeah. but you're noticing what why shows work well or not. I can totally foresee how that had an impact on you um, and how you understand the importance yeah. of presenting your craft i think i think it, as you said it's probably there's something subconscious or unconscious in it there there has to be i just because it's not a conscious thing i, I can't put my finger on it which mm. is very odd for me because usually you know coming from engineering and science and you know deeply analytical and having to understand everything and connect everything but it's one of these things in a way i'm kind of quite happy to not fully understand it, that <laughs> yeah. it, you know, for whatever reason, you don't my, necessarily brain, have to. my brain is wired a certain way and it's just, it's been fun and advantageous for me. So I'll just go with the flow. Yeah. Going out to the topic of culture. There's a lot of people who talk about innovation. There's a lot of people who talk about, you mentioned diversity, cr being creative. Um, but a lot of it can just be semantics where you're just kind of throwing around words that yeah. seem to fit the mold of what people are interested in at the moment. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to understand what your perspective is on culture because you've obviously become one of the most important parts of your role is to become a, a deep observer of culture and how you can breed creativity amongst, yeah. amongst polarizing audiences. Yeah. What are some of the things that have, uh, what are some things that have worked along the way? And then I'm just as curious to know what the things that haven't worked that you've tested as well. So I heard this expression once, I think it was by a guy called Astro Teller who heads up what was called, is now called X, which is part of Alphabet, you know, the parent company. Okay, yeah. So this like their moonshot kind of, and I heard him give a talk and he, he described himself as a culture engineer and that really resonated with me because I am an engineer, an aeronautical engineer, but I'm deep, like everything I do today, whether it's a technology thing, an innovation thing, a creativity thing or whatever, I, I view it strongly through a cultural lens. lens. I've just, be, that's become my strong worldview. I view that's the way to have quick, best, long-term impact. So I think culture is a tricky thing. It's a, it's a really nebulous concept, right? What is culture? I think the problem with it is there's a lot of, it's like I, like I've, I really struggle with these frameworks. Like there's value in a framework. If something can be generalized, it's good because then a lot more people can, can try and understand it, try and get into it, use the framework step one, two, three, like design thinking. Do these five steps, 
you might have a better product design and product offering, right? But then everyone is forced to think the same way, go through the same approach. And it's kind of limited in that sense, but it's also very powerful because it's generalized. My issue with culture is that, you know, you read an article in Harvard Business Review or Forbes or whatever, right? And you'll read, oh, you know, culture change is hard. Do these seven things for culture change and you might be more successful. The problem is like, it's so nuanced, it's so specific to the existing culture, the future culture you want, and the attitudes of the leadership, the attitudes of the people that you're trying to drive culture change throughout the body of the organization, the timing of it, has culture change already been attempted and failed? I mean, it's just, it's so nuanced that it's, in my view, generalizing that to a certain framework or do these five things and you'll be successful, I think is, is fraught with difficulty. And I think that's Probably largely why they say 80% of all organizational culture change fails. Can you believe that? I mean, I do believe it, but that's yeah. a proven, you know, measured thing. And I believe the reason is because people see there's issues in their company. They attribute that to culture. They then might bring in consultants or they read some article and says, do these seven things. And mainly the people think culture change comes from just continuously communicating the change you want. And they just do that. And then it fails. And then they think, well... The problem wasn't culture change, the problem was something else, and then they try the next fad. And it's all a waste of time and energy. And then you have to understand from a human point of view, you don't just develop a framework and start, it's not like a rules-based thing where you start just dumping, do rule one, then do rule two. That's a complete nonsense. You have to live contextually, dynamically, real-time, effectively react to the people. Like, it's culture change is all about people. It's yeah. not about a process. So you have to be able to, in there, understand the people, understand truly what their problem is. Like, if someone's resisting a change... They're not doing that to be awkward, never. There's very small percentage of the population that will just be awkward purposefully. They, their worldview is different to your worldview. They're resisting change because they don't understand why you're trying to change what they do. Um, and I, I always kind of make this joke, or I have a saying that, you know they say like, possession is nine-tenths of the law. I always say that perception is 10 tenths of reality. Like literally, it's their perception that they're doing a thing a certain way for a certain reason, and you're trying to come in and change that. And if you don't fundamentally understand why, what their worldview is, why they see things a certain way, why they do things a certain way, and if you don't take that in the context of the change you're trying to make, and if you can't nuance that change and um, communicate that change to them in a way that's very specific to an individual about what, where their resistance is coming from, then you're going to fail. And I view culture change as not... Gener like, I mean, of course, it's an organizational thing, but I view, actually view it as an individual contextual thing. And of course, there's buckets of people. Like, there's a lot of people that generally have the same problem. But I think about it as per person, like on an individual basis, Mary or Tommy or whatever. What is, their, what is their tension? What is their resistance to this change? How do I address that? How do I get to the root cause? Then how do I understand that and then help them in this new direction? And I think that's the big thing. People, people kind of think that culture change is an easy thing. They read these articles, they go through the steps. No, it's exceptionally complex. It's exceptionally complex because people are complex and fundamentally you're trying to change people. And if you don't understand the people side of it, then you're completely wasting your time. So that, that's generally, and my observation is most people that try and drive culture fundamentally don't even understand what they're talking about because they talk about it as processes and steps and it's all vision and communication, but they don't actually understand it there's a person there, a real, actual person that has thoughts and feelings and experience and has a different worldview to you. And if you don't address that, then you're wasting your time. And that's, in my view, why 80% of culture change initiatives fail, because most people don't treat 
it as a people problem. They treat it as a process communication problem. Have you made any changes at Bell Labs to try and encourage culture and innovation and communication amongst these, these different parties? Yeah, yeah, quite a lot. I mean, I can give one example actually from many years ago in the Dublin lab. I mentioned that I was growing this team in Ireland. We went from like six people to 18 people in a couple of years, quite, quite a big expansion. And we hired people specifically for certain, like in the interview process, they were told in unknown certain terms, you're, you're, if you were hired, if you're successful, you must collaborate. You must be the most collaborative, collaborative person you've ever met in your life. You must collaborate with every other member of the team and you must collaborate with other teams in Ireland and you must collaborate with other teams in the rest of the world. Like you must, like you're going to be paid a salary and it's our expectation of you for you to perform well. You must be that collaborative. Do you understand? Like if you're not collaborative, do not accept this position. If you're not collaborative and you join, I'm telling you now we're going to have issues. And I would tell them up front, but of course we would also try and evaluate their ability to adapt and collaborate through the interview process. So higher dating people had a really very strong team, like strong individual characters, quite strong as a team. But I noticed that they weren't collaborating with the rest of the team as I would have really have hoped in our design as a team, in the hopes of all of us as a team, how the level of collaboration I would have hoped wasn't anywhere near where I thought it would be, although it was far better than most in, in most places. So one of the, I had two kind of, just thinking about the characters, the approach, what was going on, why they weren't collaborating. I would meet with them, have team meetings, Hey, folks, you know, I don't think we're really collaborating. I really think you should collaborate more. They're all, yeah, yeah, nodding their heads. Yeah, we'll collaborate. And then nothing would change, you know. So I try to think, well, what are the ways I can try and fix this to help, naturally help them collaborate? Without it being me forcing it as a dictate from management, you know. Like, oh, what, what do management know? Like, we're collaborating. But to try and organically make it a real thing. And, of course, there's the continuous communication side of it. I would bring it up every team meeting, like every week. I don't think we're collaborating. I think we could collaborate more. They'd all nod their heads. Yeah, you're right. And then nothing would change. So there's like two, one little silly trick that worked really powerfully. And then there was a whole infrastructure change that I can talk about. The little silly trick was, I was getting a bit frustrated. I was speaking with everyone individually about collaboration, speaking with everyone every week as a team. Nothing was changing for a long, long time, many, many months, maybe even a year. You know, it was just like, and I was like, what the hell is going on? What's wrong with me? How am I not communicating this right? And I, I, I got to, I realized that they mustn't really understand the problem with them not communicating. They probably think they're doing great. And how can I convince them, one, that they're not actually communicating when they think they are, and they're not collaborating? How can I prove to them that there's value in doing more than they're doing? So it was a really simple thing. One day, I had this thought. We had a team meeting in a, in a big conference room in, in Dublin, a long rectangular table. And I said to them, look, I'm at my wit's end. I really, you know, we've talked about this endlessly. Nothing has changed. I'm going to have to force this somehow. Here's, I want to just prove to you all that you're not actually collaborating. I put a pen in the table, spun the pen, whichever people were at either end of the pen, to all the team publicly, they had to, for one minute, tell the room what the other person was working on, what they were having challenges with, what the recent successes they were having, just generally at a high level, like what is that person that you work right beside? What are they doing? Super simple, nothing complicated. The first time I did this, no one, and we did it, like went through four spins and I had to stop. No one could explain what anyone else was doing. And all these people sat right beside each other. They couldn't explain. It well, was, what were, were, were these people that were researchers? They were engineers? Yeah, they, so this was, this was when it was, there were, the art side of it had no, no, this is way back. Just, this is in Dublin when I was running the thermal, it was an energy, it was a department on, Thermal management, removing heat from products, okay. uh, energy efficiency, battery stuff. Like it was all material scientists, mechanical engineers, 
the electrical engineers, that kind of general STEM engineering And vitally important that they would communicate with each other oh. because it would help open up other problems and it, creativity. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. For those general, you know, normal reasons why you would want to, like the uh, adjacent possible, like I talked about mm-hmm. as an example. So I did three, sp- four spins of the pen. And they, none of them could explain in even at a high, roughly a high level, like what anyone else was doing. And I said, like, now, like, I said that, do you, not, like, do you not think that's really bad? Like, you're literally sitting right beside each other. You're part of the same team. We were, you were hired expressly to collaborate. You know, that's the value of this team. Like, we all signed up to this team as a team commitment that we would collaborate. And can you see you clearly can't be collaborating well if you don't know what the other is doing? And it was like, I, you know, it was like a light bulb moment for everyone. And I did that the next team meeting number of spins it was far better I did it one more time and it was spectacular and I never did it had to do it after that and that was one like little simple thing but it was very powerful that I had to get them to experience and see directly the that, that they had no idea yeah. what the others were doing and that's just not right and the other fix we had then was more about the space so we had we had a lot of we had some people that worked at a desk like numerically on the computer we had some people that worked only in the physical lab doing experiments and we had some people that were hybrids that kind of did some computer work, did some experimental work. And what we, the last thing we wanted was to have a, some of the desk-based computer people never engage strongly with the um, lab-based experimental people. So what we ended up doing is we just completely op- create, built a new lab, opened it completely up, and had the lab, which was both a lab for desk-based numerical people, experimental lab space, and it was people's office desks where they would just do emails and write papers, whatever. And we had this hybrid lab, which brought all parts of our team together and it was completely open. And you would have like a normal desk with a computer and whatever, where people did work. And then you would have a research desk, like a lab desk right beside it with experiments running. And everyone was in the same space, completely open. And at any moment in time, anyone that had a challenge that they couldn't overcome, all they had to do at worst was, you know, look over their shoulder, do a little bit of a shout to whoever in, in the farthest part and say, hey, you know, you're great at whatever matrix calculation i can't do this mat- whatever can you come and help me and then problem solved and i can give you, i could give you examples where in some of our biggest projects that we were doing for the product where we had major tech issues that we really couldn't overcome like it's going to be a killer uh stop to this research going into product where it happened where the core researchers that were world experts in this thing couldn't solve it spend a long time one of our other engineers in a different field doing a totally different thing was in the lab uh, one of the guys, he's just banging his head off the desk. I cannot solve this, getting frustrated. The other guy goes, hey, you know, what's going on? Like, what, just tell me. Explain what was going on. This guy goes, oh, I know how to fix that straight away. Yeah, I was going to say, it must be extremely fun because it's constantly new, interesting things yeah. that are stretching your mind. Yeah, every day for the last few years when I've been working on this, I, my perspectives change as I learn. This is the most learning I've done maybe ever. And even, and usually, you know, the learning plateaus, but still to this day, I'm, I'm in that kind of uh, steep gradient, steep curve or steep gradient of learning that really excites me. So that's good. I can see it, that being the case for quite some time. Yeah. And is, are you, are, do you plan that you're going to be in the States for, for the long-term future? Yeah. I mean, I, I like it here. The type of work that I'm into and the type of work that I want to do, honestly, I can really only do it here in the States at the scale that I like to do it. So it would be honestly very hard for me to do this anywhere else, even in Ireland, just at the scale that I like to do things. So, and I, I like it here, like the quality of living, you know, I, I feel quite at home here. So, yeah, I, I can't, there's no current near-term plans for me to go back. Although, obviously, I miss 
the place a lot. But at the same time, I'm so motivated by work that, and I get so excited by the kind of things I can achieve here that that kind of means that at least for the next few years, I see myself here. Good stuff. Well, thank you very much, Don. It's really interesting work and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this with us here today. Thanks for having me. I want to say thank you to Donald for joining me on today's episode and thank you for listening to today's show as well. If you have any suggestions, please reach out to hello at digitalirish.com and let us know. If you want to learn more about the Digital Irish, you can visit digitalirish.com or message us on social with hashtag digitalirish. And if you are listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and review the show because it helps us tremendously. You can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcasting platforms. I would like to thank Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast. <laughs>